You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people, and that means when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. We have two passages this morning. The first one is from Genesis chapter 1, from verse 1 until chapter 2, verse 3, and our second passage will be from Ephesians chapter 1, from verses 3 to 10. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Starting from Genesis chapter 1 from verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the fourth day. Then God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. 
and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Our second passage is from Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 3 to 10. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. It is, it is uh, good to be back. I haven't been up here and preached for a while, so hopefully it goes all right. Um, 
thank you for all of you when I was on leave, for all the people who sent me recommendations of what I should spend my leave watching. Uh, it was very good. I got through the entire... Well, I caught up on the entire season of, um, of Demon Slayer, which is good, which is not an occult thing, don't worry. It's uh, just a very nerdy thing that people watch. It is, it is funny. About once a year, about once a year, I get really addicted to watching something online. Uh, sometimes it's a Korean drama. My name, Attorney Wu's not very good. Marcus tried to get me in on that. Got a few episodes in, kind of gave up. Uh, other times, it's a Japanese anime. Don't judge me. I'm going to Japan in October. I'm very excited. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it could be uh, Jujutsu Kaisen. It could be Demon Slayer. It could be all the sort of things that Johnson Sue enjoys watching in his spare time. But, but a, a few years ago, I got hooked on Sherlock. Uh, that Netflix series that's based on those books by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Have any of you seen Sherlock? Yes, the yes. Oh, okay. Not as many as I thought. It's pretty good. Make sure you watch it. Um, it's about a detective, Sherlock, right? Uh, he's played by Doctor Strange, uh, and what makes Sherlock so brilliant is apparently his uh, his uh, super skills of deduction. He can come into a crime scene, see what's going on, and in some way, he can see what no one else can. He he can deduce what really happened. And, and Sherlock's most well-known line is this, you see, but you do not observe. You see, but you do not observe. You see all the pieces, right? The, the knife, the body, the candlestick, but, but you don't understand how it all fits together. You, you can kind of see what's in front of you, but you can't see the story behind it. You can see what the crime scene says, but you can't see what it means. You see, but you do not observe. Friends, I think that's what happens when we read Genesis chapter 1. You see, I suspect that more people have read this chapter than any other part of the Bible. Just think about it. January 1. Every year, as Christians with such great optimism embark on their Bible reading plans, what do they read? Genesis 1. Now, let's face it, we all know all of them go to die in the wilderness of Leviticus and Numbers, but we at least can get through Genesis 1 on January 1, right? We've read this a thousand times over, and we think we know what it means. Some of us will read this and think that Genesis 1 is all about the who question, who created the world. And in part, it is the answer in the beginning, God created the world. The world is not the result of some random cosmic accident. Others of us will read Genesis 1 and will think it's all about the how question. How did God create the world? So there's a scientific front to that, right? Some Christians will read this and say, well, aha, God created the world in six 24-hour days. Maybe. And on the moral front... Some people will read Genesis 1 and say, oh, look, Genesis 1 is about how God created the world. He created the world for marriage to be between one man and one woman, and it is. But I want to suggest that if we read this chapter only to answer the who question and the how questions, we see, but we do not observe. We're seeing what sits on the surface of the passage, but we're not really observing what lies beneath. You see, I want to suggest that actually at the heart of this passage is not simply the who question or the how question, it's actually the why question. Why did God create this world? Why did God create us? 
Why do we exist? Why on earth are we here? If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't call yourself a Christian, can I say that's a question that all of us need to answer? What on earth am I here for? And it's no surprise that if we can answer that why question, which I want to suggest we can, your life will change forever. So, as we ask what is the mission of God, this is where we start. Because all good theology starts with Genesis. And this chapter tells us why we exist, though we might not be able to immediately see it. Here's what I want to do today. Prepare yourselves. I want to preach this passage three times over. I want to begin by looking closely at this chapter and ask, what do you see? Then I want to go back and look at the passage again, but more closely and ask, what do you see now? And then, because I have a deep distrust in human ability, I want to go round three and look at the passage yet again and ask, what about now? Uh, I normally travel up to Sydney to get uh, new glasses because own days in Sydney is very good. They give you a 24-hour turnaround. When I go to get my eyes checked, my optometrist tells me, Adam, look at that image. What do you see? And I'm like, I see a blurry orange dot against a blue background. And then what she does is she changes the lens not once or, or she changes it twice and it gets clearer and clearer. And in the end, I'm like, ah, yeah, there it is. It's actually a hot air balloon against the blue sky. I don't know if they put that for absolutely everyone. Well, that's what I want to do today. I want to look at this familiar picture and I want to change the lens twice over so that we might see what we'd otherwise miss. Make sense? That's what we're going to do. Okay, so are you ready? Look closely. What do you see? Hot air balloon against the blue sky. Not yet, right? I see a beautiful garden. That's the first thing that I see. Let's start right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, right? Whatever you might say about why we exist, here's the first piece of the puzzle. God. He is the center of the universe. God, fundamentally, is the answer to our existence. Uh, The uh, best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, whatever you think about it, it opens with these really great words. Here's what Rick Warren says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. And that God created a good world. You see that refrain throughout chapter 1 over and over again, don't you? And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Friends, we are not ascetics who separate ourselves from a corrupt world. We are not dualists who divide a good heaven from an evil earth. No, we have been created by the one God for a good world. Our purpose in life, whatever it may be, is earthy, it is tangible, it's material. The purpose of our lives is stained with the dust of the earth. The Hebrew word for man, Adam or Adam, right, comes from the word soil or dirt. When I was at college, someone came up to me after Hebrew and they said, 
Hey, Dirt, how are you? And I'm like, thank you, that's very kind. They were right in one sense. There is a deep connection between all of us and this world. Uh, some people will say, um, uh, let me just move this for a moment. Some people will say that uh, Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. We're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. We seem to only care about people's spiritual salvation, but we don't seem to care about their physical needs. Well, I want you to see, Genesis 1 says that is the furthest thing from the truth. Our our reason for existence is intrinsically tied to this world. Yes, it's true, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, but at the same time, this world is our home. We were created for this world. This world was created for us. I want you to see that God created a good world, but He also created a world that has an order. A logic, a purpose, things make sense in this world. Notice, let's skate over it. Notice on days one, two, and three, God creates the day and night, the sky and the land and sea. It's like he creates three buckets, as it were, right? And then on days four, five, and six, he fills those buckets. The day and night with the sun, moon, and stars. The sky with the birds, the sea with the fish, the land with every living thing works. It all makes sense. Everything has its proper place. Nothing is out of place. When I was uh, growing up, my cousins and I would spend hours playing with Lego. Any of you play Lego? It's before. Oh, thank you, Chuck. That's very good. Did you have that moment when you tried to separate two pieces, a really thin one, and you'd kind of snap and bend your fingernail trying? Very annoying. Um, the thing about Lego is this, right? There's no point having a hundred little pieces scattered everywhere unless it all fits together. When you build a Lego set, you're, you're taking the different parts and you're ordering them to create a bigger whole, to create something better. Can you see that's what God is doing in Genesis 1? He's ordering the individual pieces of of light and darkness, land and sea, bird and fish and every created thing, and he's putting them together to create this good world. Here's the amazing part. He invites you and me to join him in that project. He invites us to... Build that Lego set with him, as it were, to continue putting the things together, right? Just look at what God says to the man in verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, let me be clear. To subdue the earth doesn't mean to abuse the earth. It simply means to order it, to put the Lego pieces together just like God started doing. And in chapter 2, that's exactly what Adam does. Look at what he does. He gives names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Adam is, is continuing God's work of putting those Lego pieces of the world together and setting everything in its right place. You know why I wasn't good at playing with Lego? I never liked to use the instruction manual. I was like, I don't need that. I can look at the box cover. It should be easy enough. Well, step one of the instruction manual is this, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Do you know, um, 
uh, in life pre-Lego, I'm sure people played with puzzles, which we also did, right? Um, when you assemble a puzzle, what do you do? You often start by finding a few pieces that fit together. Those pieces then form a picture that you then can build out from to fill out the rest of the puzzle. That's what Eden is. The starting point of the good world that God is putting together. The miniature model of what the whole world will one day be. And it's beautiful. Look at verse 9. The Lord caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. What a world. If this is a garden that never runs dry, it's full of gold, delium and onyx and every precious stone. This, this beautiful garden is a picture of the world that, that God is putting together. And then, here's what God does, chapter 2, verse 15, He takes the man, places him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Here's the rest of the Lego set, Adam, go for it. So if you ask me on first pass, I, I read Genesis 1, what do you see? I see a beautiful garden. Now, if that's what I see, then I want to suggest our mission in life is to look after the earth. If Genesis 1 is the final picture of a beautiful garden, then we exist for this one purpose, to care for God's creation. I want to say there's a sense in which that's true. In Genesis 3, God doesn't just curse humanity, He curses the ground. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In Leviticus 25, it's not just the people of God who observe a Sabbath, but there'll be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land. And, and one day, God promises to not only redeem humanity, He promises to restore our world. Just, just picture this vision of eternity in Isaiah 35, right? Here it is. This is what eternity will look like, that the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It's not just us. No, our whole world, the land, the seas, and the skies, they'll cry out in praise when this whole world is renewed. God's mission is so vast that it covers every square inch of our world. Friends, can I say, whatever our mission in life might be, it is a good and right thing for Christians to care for our creation. We should care about things like drought and climate change and conservation. We should care about animal welfare and protection. This is what Proverbs 12 says, 12.10 says. I bet you no one ever reads it, right? The righteous cares about his animal's health, but even the merciful acts of the wicked are cruel. Everyone knows the name William Wilberforce and associates him and that name with the abolition of the slave trade. Not many of us associate that name with, of all things, the RSPCA, he founded it. One of his great causes was the protection of animals. I want to say that there is a rightness in God's people caring for God's world. But, if we read Genesis 1 and, only, and all we see is this beautiful garden, if we think that our mission is creation care at its heart, I want to say we see, but we do not observe. Because I want to change the lens now and show you Genesis 1 isn't actually the picture of a beautiful garden. Look more closely. Look more closely. 
What do you see? Do you see the kingdom? Do you see the kingdom? Now, at first glance, if my optometrist said that, you know, I'm like, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's a hot air balloon that's orange against a blue sky. And she's like, no, it's actually an aardvark. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't, couldn't have picked that, right? Like, but, but it's not that. I want you to look more closely. Look at the man and woman. Look at the man and woman. In chapter 1, verse 26, what does God say? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Well, what does it mean that we're created or made in God's image? Classically, people have understood that to mean that unlike animals, human beings have this capacity for moral reasoning. That's explanation number one. Explanation number two, Genesis 5. Uh, to be created in God's image means that we are sons and daughters and children of God. Uh, explanation number three, Genesis 9, uh, letter, to the, letter to James, uh, it, letter of James, it means that being created in God's image means that all of us, Christian or not, every human being has an inherent dignity and worth. I want to say true, true, and true, but still we see, but we do not observe. You see, at its heart, to be created in God's image means to be a representation of the King. Imagine that. You are a picture of the king. When you wake up in the morning and you go and brush your teeth and look in the mirror and you see yourself bleary-eyed, sleep-deprived, tell yourself, I am a reflection of the king, if you really believe that. <laughs> the, the death of Queen Elizabeth last year, right, it was one of the most historically significant events of our time. I want to take a guess that none of us have ever met her. Has anyone here actually met the Queen? Okay, that coheres with what I assumed, right? But all of us knew what she looked like. In fact, I want to say that um, prior to uh, pay wave and cash going away, I saw the Queen almost every day of my life because it was her image printed on the back of every Australian coin. It still is. This image, right, is meant to represent her reign in these realms. It's meant to say this country is under her rule. Now, I'm not wading into the territory of whether you're a monarchist or Republican. I don't really care, I'm saying. The whole idea behind it is when you pick up your 20-cent coin, and I have a lot of these in my car right now, uh, we're meant to observe this land is her kingdom. I want to say it was exactly the same in the time of Genesis. Kings, right, they would take over foreign lands and they would set up statues of themselves there, images of themselves to show that this foreign land is actually under my rule. And every time you'd go to a foreign land and you'd see that statue, you'd see that picture, you'd go, aha, this land is his kingdom. Okay, Genesis 1, look back, see the man and woman created in God's image. When you see that, it's like you're looking at a statue of God. It's like you're looking at that coin now, but it's stamped with God's image. And you're meant to go, oh my gosh, this isn't just a garden. This is God's kingdom. And if that's true, if this is more than just a garden, if, if Genesis 1 and 2 show us a picture of a kingdom, then guess what? Your job 
And my purpose in life isn't to be a gardener, good though that is, it is to be a ruler. That's why in verse 28, what does God call Adam to do? Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Or in Psalm 8 that we open today with, we read, You made us little less than God. And crowned us with glory and honor. You made us ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet. You see, friends, God created us not to care for creation, but to rule his kingdom. God created us not to care for creation, but to rule his kingdom. But I want to say, he doesn't even want us to stop there. To rule a kingdom is one thing. I can kind of passively take a job and just look after it and just, you know, prune the, prune, the, uh, prune the plants and weed the garden, but it's much more than that. God doesn't just want us to rule his kingdom. He wants us to extend his kingdom. He wants us to advance his kingdom over every square inch of this world. Genesis 1.28, God wants us to fill the earth with his glory. Psalm 72 says, may the king rule from sea to sea, and I get this right, and may the king rule from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Crowd participation moment. What's right next to the Euphrates River? Anyone take a guess? Garden of Eden. Can you see what's going on in this passage, right? When God calls Adam to work and watch over the garden, he's not just saying, oh, look, Adam, here's a garden. Just, you know, weed the garden and prune the leaves. No, he's saying, look at this garden kingdom and extend it to the furthest corners of the earth. What is true of Eden must be true of everything. Extend my rule over everyone and everything in this whole world. When I was a kid, in Sunday school, I blame my Sunday school teacher. No, I don't. She was great. I always thought that God created this world perfect. And the whole point of everything is to return to Eden. But that's not what it says. Genesis says that God created the world good. It doesn't say that he created the world complete. The picture that we get here is like God, right? He, he starts putting together the pieces and our mission is to complete the Lego set. It's like God took the pieces of the puzzle and he did what all of us do, right? You find the four corner pieces, you put them there, you then assemble the borders and you find those pieces in the middle that then fills out the rest. That's what God does. He, he assembles the borders, takes Eden, that picture in the middle and says, okay, you finish it now. And the picture on the box isn't a garden. The picture is a kingdom. Why does all this matter? If we look at Genesis 1 and all we see is a garden, right, we'll wrongly think that our mission is just to tend to the garden, to look after the planet. But this isn't just a garden. It's a kingdom. And our mission is to advance that kingdom to the ends of the earth. Our mission is to bring everyone and everything under the rule and reign of Jesus. And for us Christians, that means our mission is to save sinners into the kingdom of God. 
Colossians 1.3. It means rescuing sinners from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of the Son. Ephesians 1.10, it means to bring everyone and everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, that's God's mission, to save people into the kingdom of His Son. If we think that our mission is just creation care, we'll actually have missed the point of Genesis 1 altogether. We will have seen but not observed. Good though it is, our mission is not the conservation of this earth, it is the conversion of this world. Why on earth are we here? Why do any of us exist? It is not fundamentally to care for this planet, good though that is. The mission of our lives is to extend God's rule by saving people out from slavery and sin and into the kingdom of Christ. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. That's why you exist. It's why I exist. But believe it or not, that's still not the full picture. It's that moment where you can see your optometrist and she's like, that, that one that flips like that, is this clear or that clearer? First or second? You're like, second. Okay, this or that? First? That's impossible. To be consistent, they both had to be second. We're getting clearer to the point where I'm be, I'd be happy if I read Genesis 1 and that's all I saw. But I want to say we can get one lens clearer still. Look closely. What do you now see? Do you see the temple? All right, now you're thinking... You're crazy, right? You you need to get your eyes checked, right? Because you're you're not changing the lens, you're changing the picture now. I could look at this garden from 10 different angles and there's no way that I'll ever see a temple. It's like one of those optical illusions that I hate doing, right? No matter how hard you concentrate, I cannot see the young girl. I can only see the old lady. I've just never been able to. I spent hours doing it. It will never happen. I want you to look even closer, right? Let me give you a few clues. Where does God dwell? A temple, right? Leviticus Leviticus 26, 12, the Lord says, I'll walk among you. Well, where's God walking in Genesis 3? In the garden. Secondly, in, in 1 Kings 6 and 7, we find what the temple looks like. The temple walls are carved with cherubim, Palm trees and flower blossoms. Its pillars are decorated with 200 pomegranates and the tops are shaped like lilies. Gosh, this temple, it looks a lot like a garden, doesn't it? And Genesis 2 says that Eden is filled with every tree pleasing in appearance. Let me ask, what's the temple made out of? 1 Chronicles 29, King David says it's built with all kinds of precious stones like gold and onyx. Exactly what we find in Genesis 2. It's almost as if the the temple is a picture of Eden, and Eden is a picture of the temple. In Ezekiel 28, Eden is not just the garden of God, but it's also his sanctuaries. Friends, is the picture starting to look any clearer? Eden isn't just this garden where God lives. It's not just this kingdom where God reigns. No, Eden is a temple where he's worshipped. And when God calls Adam to work and watch over the garden, those two words are exactly the same words as what a priest does over a temple. In Numbers 3, the priest watches over the congregation and he works at the tabernacle. 
What's the upshot of all this? Eden is a temple, Adam is a priest, and it's his job and our mission more than anything else in our lives to worship the Lord. That's why we exist. You were made for this one thing, not even to obey God, not even to submit to his rule. You were made to lift your hands in worship and adoration of Jesus Christ as your King and your beloved Savior. You see, I can obey a king, but I can obey him pretty resentfully, unwillingly, and begrudgingly. I can bend the knee, but still hate the king. Friends, it is not enough for us to bend the knee in submission. We must lift our hands in praise. Can I say when we sing after, you are more than welcome to do that? Because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy not just of our allegiance. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy not just of our loyalty. He deserves our highest love. It is not enough for Jesus to be my sovereign king. He must be my beloved Lord. Jesus must be my supreme treasure, my deepest affection, the object of my highest worship. And I want to say that if you love him like that, if you worship him like that, it is not enough that you alone worship the king. We must spread the worship of our God. Psalm 72 ends with these powerful words. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's true, what is the chief end of our world? Surely then it's for everyone, from every nation and every tribe, in every language, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our mission isn't simply to extend God's reign. It's to spread his glory. You know, often when we talk about mission, the question is this. How much do you love your non-Christian friends and family? Does your heart break for the lost? We think that our mission is to save sinners. And I want to say it is. Clearly, our mission is to save sinners. Wait for Sermon 3, right? We proclaim the gospel. Why? Because I don't want to see people I love suffer the fires of hell. Our hearts should break for the lost. Our hearts must long for their salvation. We must be willing to say with the Apostle Paul that I am willing to be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of and the benefit of my brothers and sisters. It's right for us to, to look at our lost world with tears in our eyes. To think of our family, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our sons and daughters, our fathers and mothers who don't know the Lord. It's right for us to see that and weep. It's right for us to be driven by these truths that, that heaven and hell are real. The time is short and Jesus is returning. But friends, can I say that 
stone me outside the campsite later, right? The world's salvation is not our ultimate mission. The world's salvation is not our ultimate mission. The salvation of the world is our penultimate mission, but it's not our ultimate mission. What do I mean by that? Why is it that we long for the world's salvation? Why is it that countless missionaries have been willing to go, live, suffer and die in distant lands to bring the gospel to every nation? Well, yes, of course. It's so that sinners might be saved. Yes, of course, so that hell might not be their destiny. Yes, of course, so that heaven might be their home. But what drives us more than anything else? The reason that we long for the world's salvation above all other motivations is this. Is that because it it gives God the greatest glory. The gospel is the chief means of God's glory. Yes, we must be motivated by a heart that breaks for the lost. But we must be even more motivated by a heart that burns for the Lord and longs for Him to be worshipped. We should long for sinners to be saved, not only so that they might escape the fires of hell, but also so that they might give God the greatest glory. The worship of our God, the glory of our King, that is our highest ambition. Friends, we've looked at this chapter three times over. And each time I've asked you that same question, what do you see? Now, look up. Lift your eyes and look at our world beyond the four corners of this light-proof hall. When you look at our world with all of its beauty and brokenness, what do you see? Maybe you see an earth that's ravaged by disease, disaster, and death, and you might long to repair that world by, by caring for our creation. Can I say that is a good thing? I want to commend that. It is a good thing, but it alone is not enough. You see, but you do not observe our greatest mission. Maybe you might look out and see a world that's desperately in need of salvation, sinners that are destined for judgment and hell, and you might long to save them into the kingdom of God's Son. And I want to say, yes, that's our task. That's why we're here. Devote your life to it. Give anything you can for that great mission, but still, it alone is not enough. We see, but we still do not observe our greatest mission. No, when we look out, friends, and see our world in its beauty and brokenness above all else, we must see this, a world that needs to be filled with the glory of God, a world that needs to come under the Lordship of Christ, a world that will only ever find its deepest satisfaction, its truest joy, and its highest treasure when every knee bows in worship of Christ as our King. That is what must motivate us. That is that to which we must devote our whole lives. That, Lord willing, our friends and family might not just be saved from judgment, but that they might be saved for glory. I'm going to pray.
Sovereign God, our sights are set too low and our vision is too small. And we look at this world not as we ought to. But God, we pray that you might give us the eyes to see a world that is desperately in need of your glory. Lift our eyes to the kingdom of your Son so that we might see him in all his glory. And so worship him and devote our whole lives to seeing the worship of the Lord Jesus spread to every corner of this world. Give us hearts that not only break for the lost, give us hearts that burn for the Lord Jesus as our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.